Good morning, church. Are you awake and able to take nourishment? I hope so. I have two texts for you this morning. The first is from Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. It's part of an entrance liturgy. When the king would come back to the city, there was a process that would happen before he would be allowed back into the city. Here's what the text says. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ye ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ye ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And then from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, the second chapter, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of the slave, and being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning we're going to talk about glory. Or as my Southern Baptist grandmother from Wilmington, North Carolina called it, glory. When I was young, I thought there must be a connection because I, in the upstairs part of an old Victorian house, sometimes I would wake in the middle of the night and have to go find the streams of living water. And at the end of the hall, there was an eerie light leading me to the streams of living water. And when I got in the bathroom, there was a plug-in glow-in-the-dark Jesus in the bathroom. And I said, glory. Thank you for living me to the streams of living water. One of my favorite classical musicians is George Friedrich Handel. And probably sometime during the Christmas season, you heard some of Handel's Messiah. Certainly, it's one of the most glorious musical compositions of all time. But very few people know the story of its remarkable origins. You see, Handel wanted to be a writer of opera. He was from Germany, so he moved to Italy, the center of all things opera. And the problem is 
that he moved precisely at the time when the opera market bottomed out. And he had a very hard time finding work. Indeed, he found himself living from hand to mouth. So he decided, well, there are other kinds of music that I can also write. And so he moved to London, where he took to writing oratorios, which on the whole managed to keep his head above water, but he was living at a subsistence level. He was the classic starving artist. At the point of both poverty and despair, one day he was handed a remarkable libretto. Now, a libretto is a text that in this case was a combination of scripture texts. And the combination of scripture texts focused on Old Testament prophecies, especially Isaiah, and some New Testament texts as well. Handel's pulse quickened and his pen was sharpened. He went into his room, he told his landlady in the flat in London, do not bother me, slip the food under the door, I am inspired. And sure enough, over the course of only a very few days, maybe a little more than a week, Handel had written the whole of what we know as Handel's Messiah. And when he finally emerged from his study, He was heard to say by his landlady, I did think I saw the heavens open and the very glory of God appeared to me. Now when you listen to this glorious music, so very full of joy and other positive passions, it's easy to believe him. Something remarkable had happened to Handel at this juncture in his career in the 18th century, and it's been a blessing to the church ever since. My spiritual forebear, John Wesley, went to one of the early performances of this work, and here's what he said. It had some affecting parts, but I don't know if it really will last. I'm very glad that John Wesley wasn't a prophet. This story and our text for today raised the whole question What is glory? And what in the world do we mean by God's glory or even seeing God's glory? You'll remember the verse in John 1 where at the climax of that beginning introduction to the Gospel of John, it says, and we have seen his glory. What does that really mean? Furthermore, How is it that you and I, mere mortals, can glorify God? I mean, I don't know that we can really polish God's halo. It's already as stupendous as it could be. How can we glorify God? And why should we do so? These are questions that are worth pondering at some length. So join with me, if you will, in a study of glory. Glory is an interesting concept. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Okay, you're going to learn your dose of Hebrew and Greek this morning. Repeat after me, kavod, kavod. It's transliterated K-A-B-O-D, but but pronounced kavod. Now that is the word in Psalm 24. 
And here's the root meanings of this word. Weightiness, heaviness, significance. So when the psalmist asks, who is the king of glory? He's really asking, who is that weighty dude? Who is that significant person? Who is this king? The answer is clearly given. It's the biblical God, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, who is the king of glory. And he demands entrance into the city. Just as he demands entrance into your life. In due course, the concept of glory was associated with the idea of a bright, shining presence of God when God manifested his presence. It came to be called the Shekinah glory, and it was said to radiate from the Ark of the Covenant. The Greek word for glory, however, is something else. It's doxa. Say that with me, doxa. That's where we get the word doxology. Doxa, doxa, logos. Glory words. That's what we do when we praise God. We offer glory to God. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. It's striking to me how very different some modern notions of glory are than the biblical ideas. Glory is normally associated with just God in the Old and New Testament. Much that is associated with glory in our culture has to do with human achievement, things that we do or take or accomplish. Glory is seen as something to be grasped with both hands, like a trophy, say, tomorrow night. There are even beer commercials that say this, you only go around once in life. You need to grab for all the gusto and glory you can get. Our world is full of glory grabbers. God, however, is a glory giver. Our world is filled with glory grabbers, those who seek to grab movie headlines, carve out financial empires, proclaim themselves the best things to slice bread on a football field. We know all too well our world's definition of glory. Seeing something you want and going out and taking it or winning it. Perhaps you saw the Civil War movie, Glory. It was about killing opponents, winning battles, or heroically sacrificing oneself for such ends. This is a human conception of glory, but it's not what glory means in the Bible. If we really want to get to the heart of what is glorious and what glory means, we have to look closely at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So we turn to that text. Now, one of the things that puzzled me when I began to study this text a long time ago is it's suggesting that you and I could have the mind of Christ. 
When I was young, I thought, yeah, right. I mean, he's got a God button. I so do not have a God button. But listen to how it begins. Have this mind in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Now we're going to get down to it. Glory, as modeled by Christ, has to do with humbling yourself. It's antithetical to the world's definition of glory, which is self-congratulation, self-promotion, narcissism. Have this mind in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was equal to God, did not take advantage of that, but rather stripped himself and took on the form of a human being, even a servant amongst human beings. Think about that for a minute. If there's going to be a corporate merger between God and humankind, God has to limit himself. See, the thing about Jesus is he's not 90% divine and 10% human, or 90% human and 10% divine. He's 100% human and 100% divine. So how does that work? He stripped himself. He limited himself. He took on the natural limitations you and I have. Limitations of time and space and knowledge and power and mortality. This Christological passage will climax by telling us he died. He was obedient. He even humbled himself unto death on the cross, the most shameful way to die in antiquity. Here we have a king who stooped to conquer. George MacDonald put it this way, we were all looking for a king to slay our foes and lift us high. Thou camest a little baby thing to make a woman cry. Jesus didn't come trailing clouds of glory. He came in a manger. He came so that it would be clear that no one was beneath his dignity. He was going to lift us up from beneath. Even the lowest of the low were not as low as Jesus humbled himself when he took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. You see, the world has not only a skewed sense of glory, it also has a skewed sense of greatness. When we say the word humility, which comes from the Latin humilitas, the image conjured up is a person of low self-esteem or with an inferiority complex. One of my favorite Far Side cartoons pictures this kind of Casper milk toast guy with a bow tie sitting at a desk across from his cost accountant. The subtitle says, The Day the Meek Inherit the Earth. The accountant is saying, Sir, what you have here is a rather large capital gains problem. Is that your view of humility? Does meekness equal weakness in your calculus? It certainly didn't in Jesus's. 
Here we have a divine son of God who stooped to conquer. Some time ago, I got a letter from Time magazine. You know how these form letters are? Ever so often, they fill in your name. But Time Warner, being the huge company it was, decided to leave it to the computer. The computer read my name, Dr. Ben Witherington III. And that was way too much to squeeze into those preordained little slots, at even at point .09 font, in the form letter for magazine renewal. So the letter read as follows, I kid you not. Dear Dr. Third, we know you're one of the most important persons in your no- neighborhood, surely, Dr. Third. As a caring and, com- and confident individual, you want to keep abreast of foreign and domestic thir- uh, affairs. So please, Dr. Third, just sign your name at the bottom of this page, Dr. Third, and we'll continue to send you week after week of our glorious News Weekly, Time Magazine. Yours sincerely, Time Incorporated. I was tempted to write them back, Dear Inc. (laughs) When the world tries to be personal, it treats people like numbers and things. Can I get an amen? But when God is personal, he comes in person. He humbles himself and shows us that the road of glory is the road down, humbling yourself and serving others. I mean, think about it. If Christ is the chief example of humility in the New Testament, and he is, it can't have anything to do with inferiority complexes or low self-esteem. I mean, if there was one person who walked the face of the earth who was confident and knew who he was, it was Jesus. Now, humility, hear me now, is the posture of a strong person stepping down and serving others. You want to know what's really glorious? What's really glorious is when you step down and serve others. You can glorify God by praising him, but he will also be best pleased if you will serve him humbly like Christ served us. I'm struck by the fact that the Bible never speaks of having humble feelings. Humility in the Bible really doesn't have much to do with feelings or attitudes about yourself. It certainly has nothing to do with feelings of low self-worth. If Christ is the exemplar, then it can't have anything to do with feelings of low self-worth. Humility in Christ's life and in the New Testament is an action word, not an attitude. Let me say that again. Humility in the New Testament is not an attitude about yourself. It's an action you take on behalf of others. He humbled himself and. So this Pauline text for today suggests that glory has to do with humility. In this Christological passage, it has a V pattern. The first half of the passage, Christ is going down, 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 down humbling himself even to death on a cross. And right after that comes the word therefore. And any time you see the word therefore in scripture, you need to ask, what is it there for? Because now we're going to go the opposite way. We're going to go up. Christ goes up, up, up. 
Now, what's striking to me in the Greek text of this is that the downward slope has active verbs about what Christ did. He didn't take advantage of his heavenly frequent flyer miles. He chose, rather, to humble himself. He stripped himself. He took on the form of a servant. He chose to go the way of the cross. Active verbs. But in the second half, we have passive verbs. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and God has given him the name above all names, so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That doesn't subtract from the glory of God the Father. It adds to it. Now, here's the thing about that second half. If even Jesus was not a glory grabber in our ordinary mundane way of thinking, if even Jesus humbled himself and glorified his Father rather than himself, what should be our attitude about glory? This Christological passage suggests let God do the glorifying. Let God exalt you if that should happen. Don't be engaging in self-exaltation. So you see, friends, glory in both Psalm 24 and glory, indeed, in Philippians 2 has a very different significance than what we in the world today mean by glory. I want to leave you with a story. In God's economy of things, glory appears in strange places and involves unexpected persons. I was working in the mountains of North Carolina. I'm a native of North Carolina. I was working as a Vista aide near Burnsville in the mountains with the rural poor of Appalachia one spring break. I was only a high school student. But it was my duty to pick up children and bring them to an Easter egg hunt and picnic. Now, there was this one uber-poor family way back in the woods. The family had 16 children. And there was one young man, specifically, who was five, who had never seen any other children other than his siblings. They lived so far back in the woods. So I went to the mother and said, would you please let me bring Carl to the Easter egg hunt? He needs to be exposed to other children. And it took a while, but eventually I convinced her, and she said, all right, preacher, you come get him at 6.30 in the morning. I'll have him right here on the clapboard porch. So sure enough, 6.30 in the morning, sun rising up over the mountain. I'm riding up this bumpy road, and there's Carl with the only decent suit of clothes, a suit of clothes he had Sitting there, his face scrubbed raw by his mama to look clean. You know, the thing about children who are raised in poverty is they don't really know they're poor. Somebody else has to tell them that. He jumped off the porch. He came over to me. And what I knew about Carl was he had one prized possession, a goose who laid not golden eggs, but nonetheless eggs. He handed me this big goose egg. And he said, this is for the children 
who don't have any Easter eggs. And I looked in his eyes and I saw the humble spirit of Christ stooping to serve others even when he was the poorest of the poor. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I was a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I was a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. I give him my heart and my service and my praise. There is no more glorious thing, hear me now, friends, that you could do today or any day than to praise God not merely vocally, but by stooping down and humbly serving others. You see, the most glorious thing that happens at Christmas is not the angels flying in the heavens, but the Christ child lying in the manger, redefining the word glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.